The subject for the evening talk is freedom from the known and the unknown. Sometimes the philosophers uh, tell us that a significant event took place two or three centuries ago in which philosophy, as it were, took a new direction which over the generations of men and women has had its influence, in which the world was, as it were, divided up between mind, body, and the world. And in this separation which took place, a premium began to, began to be set upon knowledge. People, initially the educated, and as more and more people became educated, a major question which began to arise, and is still very much perpetuated, is the question of why. Why this? Why that? And with this question, which has become a persistent question in the hearts and minds of us, we begin to form and establish a rather fixed view of the world. What then later occurred, and of course speaking here in a very gen generalized way, was the rise and the acknowledgement of science and the scientific community. And the scientific community, we might say, began to persist very diligently using what is referred to as scientific method, scientific methodology, to try to find some kind of answer to the questions of life. There was such an ascendancy, and to some degree there still is, of science that it almost did become the kind of only legitimate version of what truth is, of what life is. There was not only a perspective on life in the exploration of life using the material world as a primary reason or primary method, but also there's come about an extensive questioning of the beginnings, the origins. How did the world start? When did it start? What occurred in so many eons ago that brought about this situation? And what we might say of this perspective and view of the world is that the world began to be conceived very strongly, very noticeably, in terms of cause and effect. This view of the world, of cause and effect, with, as it were, science being becoming the legitimate perspective on truth, has had an immense influence on our psyche and on our relationship to life. So immense is that we've been encouraged, and therefore indoctrinated, since childhood to ask questions and to persist with the asking of these questions right through our school years. 
so keen, and, and there's no society that I know of, like America, for wanting questions and wanting to find out causes and have answers, that there is, seems to be an unabated enthusiasm to get back to school. And there is some view which is cherished widely that by going back to school one will get the answers. Unfortunately, frequently, the wrong questions are asked to begin with. <laughs> In this, one thinks one will have through, rather too often and easily, I am concerned about, to um, one will have more and more information which will somehow bring a resolution to oneself and one's relationship to life. And so one of the ways that this easily occurs for us, that one imagines by securing a particular role in life and a particular identity in life, this will make one feel complete, one will know who one is, and after that completion everything will be hunky-dory. <laughs> well, let's look around us. Do the models of success appear, honestly, enviable. So somehow or other, in this thirst for knowledge, it so very easily becomes the resource for us to gain, understandably, but to gain some kind of identity, some kind of standing and position in life. But unfortunately, whatever the role whatever the degree of knowledge and whatever the standing that we may experience in this world among peers and among others, it doesn't do much for us in understanding what life is, nor in the freedom and heart-filled love that comes with that understanding. But it takes I think an immense degree of courage and fortitude to be willing to question the social pressures which are placed on us to fit into a particular mould with a particular scope of knowledge and to settle for that. And I think to quite some degree in our society, that's what we've done. We have settled for three or four roles in life as some kind of affirmation and thinking by doing that, we'll have done our bit. And it's not easy to question that whole emphasis, that whole structure the whole philosophy of individualism. We see this, we see this affecting the Dharma community. We see this affecting various centres. 
various centers where roles become the model, where efficiency becomes the yardstick for human worth, where proficiency becomes the form of emphasis upon us, where hierarchy gets emphasized. And wherever there is any hierarchy, there are going to be the middle people and the top people, and there must be people who are at the bottom who feel disempowered. So we'll have corporate Dharma centers. If we have corporate Dharma centers, we'll have corporate meditators who think of making their meditations more efficient, giving themselves more knowledge and expertise, and hopefully rising to being some horrible task like a meditation teacher. <laughs> or whatever. And I think we need to examine and, and look at self and role and the trappings of it and sometimes the imprisonment of being stuck with the known. And the more order we have in our life, the more we exercise control in our life, the more we slot our slot self into roles in life, the more efficient, orderly, keeping timetable, and all of that, somehow, in all of that known, something gets missing. Something's forgotten in the heart. Something's forgotten about our awarenesses and our receptivities to all that which has got nothing to do with the known, nothing to do with acquired knowledge and information, nothing to do with your or my roles or status in life. Securing these roles is, it is at immense cost. So I think we need to think quite opposite and feel quite opposite to what the pressures are, to what the society tells us. What is the cost of restricting being into a form? What, what's, what are we missing in, in life? We have no idea if we have any more births or if we've had any Past, past lives, we, we've got no guarantee. What we do know, that we are here, we are the living generation, and we have some opportunity for some genuine, uh, mysterious discovery. And all our effort to be secure, and all our effort to be in a role, and to stay with the known, is maybe hiding something very vast and wonderful because we settled for something less in life. Sometimes when we're exploring the present and we're touching upon the moments, as some of you will be experiencing your time and days here, there is a kind of the familiar world to us. The familiar world of thoughts and feelings and perceptions, 
the familiar world of various mind states which are rising and falling, coming and going. There's a familiar world of the body in its multiple number of sensations, some of which we are pleased to have, remarkably enough. And sometimes we experience pain and discomfort and contractions in the body. And naturally enough, we would rather they weren't there, but they seem to have a kind of persistence at times to them. And sometimes we take a little bit more interest in these ordinary and everyday familiarities, and our very interest seems to affect them. But our very willingness to, to perceive and look into the known and what's familiar, the, the mental states, the feelings, the moods, the bodily states, all of that interconnected activity. And it seems that the very perception seems to influence the perceived. Sometimes we don't quite think that, we don't quite realize that, and so sometimes we're experiencing some event going on in the organism, in the life force. And we get, rather, and we get rather conceited, not deliberately conceited, but a conceit which is as though somehow or other we're standing detached from the event, standing outside of it, the commentator who is giving a pri precise report of what this experience is really all about. And we've, we live in a kind of an illusion with ourselves that there's some kind of objective, standoffish observer who's giving the commentary to the event. As though the, all of that was somehow quite detached and separate from the event the mind state, the body state, the emotion, or whatever. And somehow or other, it seems rather difficult to understand that it's just one event. The commentator has got no more capacity to be objective than the, the very state which it's ob observing. It seems hard to understand, it's all just part of the package. And there's no detached, objective observer of this event. It's just all the event. Sometimes we notice we're experiencing some event, and then the mind comes up with the question. We put it to ourselves, or we put it to another, we put the question, why? Why am I experiencing this? Why am I like this? So when we view that, then we have got ourselves to be the effect. I am like this. I am experiencing this. Why am I experiencing? The moment I bring in why, I am the effect. So if I am seeing myself as the effect, then I'm going to go back into yesterday, into this morning, into last week, last month, last year, and I go right back, might get back into childhood, might get, get back into the pre-birth, might even get back to conception with a bit of luck, and one will start tracing 
And one would be looking with one's mind, and if one's hopeless at doing this, one can always pay 80 bucks an hour for it, and go right back so that I can then say cause, effect. Please excuse my one-liners, I need a lot of forgiveness in these talks. <laughs> so, there is the effect, and then I'm exploring back into the past, I'm going back into the past, and I say, this, whatever, this is the cause, and this is the effect. I might, I might, through the tremendous skills which are available, and if I may say, tremendous numbers of insights that have come out of the, of the US in uh, recent years and having very beneficial uh, influence, I might, through those insights and through those people who have much skills in this area, come to an understanding and some resolution of causes and effect. If I don't understand this conceived of world, this world of the known, I bring out the old, I make that known just as much as I make the present. Now, if I don't understand it, I won't understand that those causes are just, uh, sorry, those, yes, those causes are just as much an effect. Do you understand? I look at my present situation and I say, what I'm going through today, it's owing to, it's because of that cause, because of whatever in the past, in childhood, or whatever. Now I'm the effect. But I can just as easily look at the present and say, this effect is a cause for what happens in the future. Since that's the case, when I go to causes, they are just as much an effect of other causes. And somehow or other we, we forget that. And the moment we are forgetting that, blame, anger, aggression, reaction, hostility, very easily occurs because I'm perceiving, I'm looking in one way owing to self-interest. So what does that say? If effect, like the now, here and now, is also a cause, is this if present moment cause or effect? <laughs> it has to be saying something questionable about this detached observer. Can we have a little doubt in the detached observer? When I look at the present, I experience the present. Again, it's still in the realms of the known. Known meaning experiences, thoughts, views, opinions, ideas. The world of the known is the sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. No other world outside of that. Experiences and the sense doors and the sense objects. When I experience this, which we call in shorthand the here now experience the being present experience. 
They see too that the mind itself appears to wander to the future. This appearing to wander to the future, even in a little closer examination, is a bit daft. <laughs> How can the mind wander? Where is this to the future that it wanders to? If anybody can show me the future that it wanders to, then I'll retract the statement. But so we interpret. Again, this is the forgetting, believe we're the detached observer who really knows what's happening. We interpret, oh, my mind keeps wandering to the future, keeps going to the future. This itself is just an imagined idea. But it seems real. It seems very true. One talks to other people. They say, yes, my mind is wandering. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that, isn't it? So everybody's there in a complete agreement. They're on a here and now retreat, and the future is much more entertaining. So there's this movement. The future seems to be something inherent and real and self-existent. That idea gives great room for mental license. Based on the idea, so one, if one is a little bit of tu in touch with the present, which is a very rare thing in this universe, then in that little bit of touch one will see this condition appears to be a cause, a contributing factor for some future effect. Sometimes we're so totally out of touch with life. We're so spaced out human creatures, no wonder we want to go to Mars, so spaced out that in that being spaced out we've got these flowery ideas about what we will be doing after this retreat, next month, next year, no relationship to anything. Just fantasy, pure, unadulterated fantasy. No wonder they make films in Hollywood called Back to the Future. So there's this movement that goes on. <laughs> and this futurizing. And with it, as has been pointed out in previous talks, self-materializes. Self comes in, and sometimes with the future, we get very serious about it. So serious about it that the movement of the thought and the ideas and the imaginings and that whole package is the endeavor to sort out the future, to make the future known. We're so involved in the known, we're so gripping onto the known, whether it's the known called the present, whether it's the known called the past, that we can't tolerate anything which is not known. So the future becomes this huge, apparent, vast expanse of not known. It's an intolerable state to 
being because we're obsessed with the known. So we want to make the future known as well. Then we'll feel better. So with that comes in the wish to control. So we start obsessing, we start thinking. I've got to get my life in order. I've got to do this, I've got to get this done, I've got to achieve this, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. Mantra-like, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, Om Mani Padmi Hum has never been repeated half as much as I have got to, I've got to, I've got to. <laughs> So there's this wish to control. But with this wish to control, to have it sorted out, to have things fixed, to have the known in the f with the future, with this also comes the nagging voice of fear. It nags, it worries, it irri irritates. Something might go wrong. <laughs> It might not work out as I would like. We start worrying. Worrying is an unusual expression of wisdom. That <laughs> <laughs> it might not be as I would like it to be. So the worrying that it might not work out, in a way, is a kind of perversion of wisdom. It's wisdom, but it's got a little bit askew. <laughs> <laughs> because it might not. <laughs> so when one hears, you know, the worry going on through the mind, one really should say, oh, thank you, worry. <laughs> Keep me worried. Keep, let me be worried, because it reminds me. So when this movement of control and wanting things to be fixed there, there is this fear. So what we, what, what w the message that we have been given socially, we've internalized this message. Society is like big mummy and daddy who imposes its unsatisfactoriness and its satisfactoriness on us. And in that, the idea we have been told is you can be anything you want to be. Go for it. This has been put out to us. And it's such an attractive idea. It's so appealing. I can do anything I want. I can get anything I want. I can be anything I want. That we easily grab onto. We identify with this one. Hence the need to organize the future and plan it. Yet somehow or other, we don't always get what we want. What would it be like if we did? <laughs> I said, I think, in Massachusetts just last week, if we all got what we want, the world would last a week. <laughs> I realized after I said that, that was grossly exaggerating. <laughs> So there's this movement of self taking place, trying to have things as we would want, and somehow in that movement, in that wanting, we miss the conditions. 
we miss the widespread circumstances which allow and enable an event to happen. Somehow the self-desire for the future gets blinded to the vast array of things required for a single event to take place. So aren't we tired of being a prisoner to the compellingness of self when it's blinding us to seeing very simply and directly causes and conditions multiple enable an event to happen self can't arrange that and therefore the movement of thought with regard to the so-called future is really uh, a bit part in the whole scenario. If we understand, if we allow ourselves to, to understand that, to really understand the vastness of it all with regard to the future, and to really sense that, to really understand conditionality of things. Surely that's going to have some bearing, some influence, some moderation on these compelling patterns. And sometimes, of course, the future for many people is uncertain in ways which many of us in this room don't know, don't, don't experience, don't have a sense of. We know that in just, I think, in the last year, more than more Americans have died from AIDS than died in the Vietnam War. And there are many others who are of our own age, our own peers, our own brothers and sisters who are in life, who are very much closer to the edge of things. And you and I can know, can really sense in the way that those people can sense, and, and many others. So I think in our, in our relationship to this way of world, of conceiving of it in cause and effect terms, to, to really get a sense there, to get some insight, some penetrative um, clarity with ourselves that cause-effect is just simply a way of interpreting. It's a way of looking at the, the vastness of it all. And if we can understand this phenomenal appearance of, of self in bound to time, bound to cause and effect, bound to the world of past, present and future, if we can see that interrelationship, that interconnectedness, then perhaps the, the belief in it isn't quite so substantial. When I was a monk, this was, I was a, a, a monk, Buddhist monk, from 1970 to 76. 
And the first few years, I was, uh, this was in, first period was in Thailand and the second period of my uh, monastic uh, life was in uh, India. The first years I lived in a monastery in the south of Thailand, Wat Chai Na. And China, Wat means monastery, Chai Na means at the end of the rice paddy. A monastery at the end of the rice paddy. And that's just where it was. And during the period of time that I was there, there were a number of us as monks in one part of the monastery. The uh, teacher, Ajahn Damodaro, ins insisted that we did um, all of our meditations, except for the, the monsoons, um, outdoors. Not because he thought that the outdoors was especially significant with meditation, but he knew the tendency of monks when they get into their huts was to slough off. So it was an outdoor meditation. <laughs> and one of the... Um, <laughs> I, I always remember, we used to start... I'm going to get off the track here, but we used to start the day at 4 o'clock in the, the, the morning, and the, the bell in the monastery was a, a bomb, an empty bomb, from a B-52. <laughs> and somebody had uh, given, it, given it as a dana, as a donation, uh, to, to the monastery. Uh, and I, re I remember one morning, not getting up uh, that morning at 4 o'clock, and it was just 4.30, 4.40. And opening my hut, you had three or four steps, then a small platform in the hut uh, door, and opening my hut door. And as I opened the door, Ajahn Damodaro, the teacher, was sitting cross-legged in front of the <laughs> hut. I, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so he just turned around, he said, Swadika, <laughs> which means good morning. <laughs> anyway, so one of the monks in the monastery <laughs> One of the monks in the uh, monastery was a wonderful old man named Poor Longbut. And Poor Longbut um, and I would spend time every day um, standing under a tree. And this would be three hours each day, and from noon until three in the afternoon. This long but would stand on one side of the tree, and uh, I would stand on the other. And in fact, just uh, oh, 18 months ago, I made my first visit back to Thailand, and to see some friends, but primarily to to visit this uh, to visit this uh, spot. So long but was there until he got sick, and he would never say very much. He was a very quiet, very silent kind of person. And from time to time we would, uh, I would engage him in a little conversation through a translator. And I said to him one day with regard to, he was in his uh, early um, 70s, and I said to him, no long, but you probably haven't got many years left, you know, you've been a monk for um, a number of years. And how do you regard, how do you feel about this, uh, you know, the end of your 
life coming. And he replied, he said to me, King Yama, King Yama is the personification of death, the Lord of death. He said, King Yama is roaming all over this universe looking for me and he can't find me anywhere. It was just a few months later with Longbird that Longbird got very, very sick and his standing period went from three hours to two hours to one hour to half an hour till he couldn't stand up any longer. And he became very sick and he, the doctor, Dr. Sun Tong, who I also went to see in this 18-month period ago, said that he had to go into hospital. There was cancer in the liver and he didn't have very long left. So we took him to the nearby uh, hospital and it was very apparent that there weren't many days left. And Longbut said to me, I am a, a monk. Monks die with monks. Monks die in the monastery. So I said in the, that uh, but you, you should really stay here, it will give you extra time. And he said, no, he said, you're a, a monk. He said, you have, to, you have to sign me out. So I told the doctor, poor Longbutt's wish is to be signed out of this hospital as he wishes to die in his hut uh, with the monks. So we took him back. A few days later, with the future now getting very, very brief, I, that morning, the teacher had asked me to go to, into the nearby town to talk to some people, to give some Dharma talk. And then Longbut sent a message to me in the town, and he sent the, the message with one of the novices, and he said, tell Kitty Supo, that was my name, to tell Kitty Supo to come immediately. So I knew I had to come back, and this was about 11.30, in the morning, and Longbutt was uh, lying there, and I had been lying with him side by side in the previous um, uh, days through through the night. And and he said, "Money, money, money! Come here, come here!" And I lay down be beside him, the two of us. And in those last minutes, the last forty minutes of his of his life, as he uh, uh, lay there. I could feel the pulse was getting weaker. And then he said to, then he said to me, he said, he said, um, my hand, my hand. And the first sense, that, that he said, can't see, no eyes. And the eyes, and as the senses went out, the eyes had gone first. And then I was saying a few words to him, and then no hearing. And then the second sense had gone. And so I just squeezed the hand, and then he squeezed mine back. And in the last moment, there was just this quietening of the whole breathing, and just gradual, just the occasional squeeze. And it got lighter and lighter. And this whole total quiet fade out. And it really s struck me at that time, and many times uh, since, this, this statement, King Yama 
is looking all over this universe, is looking for me everywhere, but can't find me. In those days, with Paul Longbutt, whose future uh, had faded away, that in that awareness and in some wonderful, wonderful un understanding, it wasn't Paul Longbutt fading away. Wonderful teaching. So, in our life, when we think of present, and if we think of present, we're thinking causal factors, conditioning factors, we're thinking of effects. To really know this is the way we're thinking about it. Not to give the thought some kind of inherent truth to it. Not for a moment to think that the thought has really got the handle on the way things are. It's simply a way of perceiving the world. It's simply a, a way of making the world something known. But then supposing, supposing we allow ourselves to question that, supposing we immediately allow ourselves to question the whole cause-effect syndrome, the whole construction of the time, of the past and the present and, and the future, then we begin to see that known is in a way related and dependent and interconnected with unknown. So we like with the future, in a way with the future, we look at the future in a way it's in a way extraordinarily unknown. In a way, it genuinely is a genuinely unknown for us. And when we give some sense of that, some intimation of that, we see known and unknown are not separate. But sometimes too, when we give, look at the considerations to the present, we've imagined, we've got the idea through science and religion and philosophy and analysis and many more, that somehow we know what the present is. And because we have a, ra a large and a bigger and bigger range of concepts, we can easily enter into a, a bigger deceit with ourselves and with life, that by knowing more and having more and more information, that somehow the information is de so detached and so other than life, it really says something about all this. And it seems sometimes difficult, sometimes hard or whatever, to comprehend that the thought life is as much a mystery as the claims it makes to know the way things are. It's not apart from all this which is inexplicable. And it would be a pity with our life. It would be a pity to life if we were to restrict ourselves, if we were to really imagine that roles have some ultimate significance, 
and that position has some ultimate significance. And it obviously does, it is obviously dependent on countless conditions. So sometimes, with the known and with, with the unknown, in a way, the revelation of what is known, the revelation of what is very, very familiar, the revelation of what we're exposed to, through the senses, through the body, through the thought, through the feelings, etc. In a way, is the revelation of the unknown. You know, I think very e often in meditation and in these kind of movements, and they're important movements in a, for social change, we've got some idea inside of us that we need to have a different kind of sensation to really understand. We need a different kind of experience to really sense wonder and mystery and vastness of the interrelationship of the known and the unknown. And we're constantly dismissing the most ordinary and the most superficial and the most chattering or whatever, we tend to disregard that because we've got some idea of something deep, something special, something which will confirm mystery, which will confirm <coughs> emptiness, which will confirm the inexpressible. It's rather like we're saying, the sun isn't out today. Not possible. All the sun does, it shines. It shines, shines, shines. Its only nature is to shine. It doesn't know anything else but shining. But we come along, we say, no sun today. <laughs> it's not shining today. When it shines, then it'd be lovely. And so we get moved, we get caught, we get, we get, we get disrespectful to the chattering mind. We get dismissive of movements <coughs> inwardly. We forget that that's all belonging. If vastness is to be vastness, if emptiness or suchness or truth or God, whatever the language, is to be ultimate, then it can't be an exclusion. It can't say, well, keep this out. The vastness of the nature is equally revealed and as beautifully revealed as much in heaven as it is in hell. And I think if we have a, in our life, a, 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 a taste for that, a taste for something, 
wondrous in life. My faith is that everything else will look after itself. In some wonderful and perhaps inexplicable way, everything will come out of that. The needs, the relationships, the forms, the expressions, the way of being, the roles, all of that will emerge easily and effortlessly. If, providing where there's a love for something which is not of that. And I don't think that's so distant and vast and far away. I think all of that, what I'm talking about this evening, is closer to us than the blood in our veins. I don't think we can ever move away from what is vast and wondrous. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be touched. Let's have a couple of quiet minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.